Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Amy Seifert, lecturer in law and director of the Aspire Office at the West Virginia University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Reprogramming Recidivism, the First Step Act and Algorithmic Prediction of Risk, which is published in the Seton Hall Law Review. So welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm really excited to be here and to talk with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this very uh, timely and important paper as well. And I'm really glad that your student, Carrie Miller, uh, reached out to recommend your work to me because I wasn't previously familiar with it. Well, Carrie is terrific, and it was she was a, a joy to have in class. And uh, I'm really excited when my students find my scholarship engaging too. That's a, a special kind of pleasure. Well, so your paper is about the use of algorithms in making decisions in a criminal justice context, which is very much uh, kind of on a lot of people's minds and and out there in the public sphere right now. But specifically, you're talking about a particular piece of legislation and a particular approach. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the First Step Act is and how it changed the way the federal government looks at the early release of prisoners. Absolutely. So I think one of the most important things to know about the First Step Act, which is is pretty new, right? It wasn't signed into law until the end, uh, December of 2018, and it was signed into law um, by then President Trump. I think one of the most important things to know about it is that it was really kind of miraculous um, because we had not had really meaningful criminal justice litigation, or excuse me, legislation on that scale for quite some time. And I think that if you think back to December of 2018 and how divided, um, you know, Congress was, the fact that we had something bipartisan that came out was really heralded as a big deal. Um, And so I think that it had, the First Step Act is really sweeping. There are lots of different things that it focused on. I mean, things as specific as trying to end the practice of shackling pregnant inmates during birth, um, which is, of course, a a really horrifying thing to think about. Things as as sort of um, micro as that, all the way up to looking at ways to address mass incarceration and trying to provide a way of thinking through who should be, could be eligible for early release. So this was specifically speaking about people who are incarcerated in federal um, prisons and and who in that population might be candidates for early release. And as as part of that, um, you know, Congress directed that this risk and needs assessment should happen and that there would be an opportunity for there to be some kind of assessment for who is least likely to reoffend, who are the people who are at low level risk of leaving prison and um, you know committing or more accurately, and I can talk more about that later, being rearrested for 
another crime. Well, so what gut goes into this risk and needs assessment that's being used to determine who to release and who not to release or to try to gauge the likeliness that someone's going to reoffend. In other words, what what do we mean when we talk about risk? What do we mean when we talk about needs and sort of how do those two different factors feature in that analysis? Yeah. So, uh, you know, what's really interesting is that, of course, this decisions like these have been being made for, for forever, right? Judges, probation officers, um, when you are a judge and you are sentencing a defendant to some carceral term, one of the things that you are thinking about is how likely is this person to reoffend? Um, if you look at the federal sentencing guidelines and you look at the table there, you know, you're looking at criminal history as well as the offense level, and you're trying to make a decision of what's the proper carceral term there. So it's not like this idea is anything new, right? This is just a new way of doing it for the federal government. And the things that we look at, um, you know, it depends on the tool, but for the most part, these tools look a lot at things like the age of the inmate. That's a really important predictive um, measure that people examine. They might look at the type of crime that they are incarcerated for. They will look at, um, you know, you're going to look at both static and dynamic factors. So static factors are things that uh, an incarcerated person can't change. So the crime that they were incarcerated for or their age, right? Both of those are static factors. But you also look at dynamic factors. And in fact, it's a best practice to look at dynamic factors. And those are things that are within that person's control. So things like taking classes, um, educational or vocational classes while you are incarcerated or remaining infraction-free while you are incarcerated. If you think about it, risk is this idea that, okay, we're going to look at all of these things and we're going to make a prediction about how likely it is this person will be rearrested. And then the needs can be thought of as what needs do they have to lower that risk? So if they're at statistically high risk, and we know that having a, a, a high school GED might help reduce that risk, then the GED becomes a needs, and we can match those up. Well, so if we've been making these kinds of calculations for a long time, what did the first step back change in relation to how those calculations were made? So that's a that's a great question. The First Step Act in Title I, Congress really encouraged the Attorney General to look at algorithmic decision making, um, and they they specifically asked for a risk and needs assessment that is, and here I'm quoting, objective and statistically validated. So it was um, you know certainly looking for something that is going to be beyond individual judges or individual probation officers using their own clinical judgment. And instead, now we're sort of entering into the world of algorithmic assessments. And it didn't require that the attorney general totally, um, you know, start from scratch. The, the, the First Step Act allowed the developers of pattern to 
use the sort of existing risk and needs assessment tools that had already been at use in the Bureau of Prisons. So tools like Bravo, um, which is something that the BOP had used since the 1970s. So what it does differently is it explicitly ties the likelihood that someone will reoffend to their eligibility for early release. So they wanted a tool that would place incarcerated people into categories of risk level for reoffending. And then those who are minimal or low are the ones who are going to be eligible for early release under the First Step Act, but those who are medium and or high will be ineligible for it. So it really it explicitly conditioned your ability to take advantage of the early release that the First Step Act was 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 promising or was providing to your statistically determined likelihood of reoffending. So you mentioned pattern. What is pattern? And to the extent we know, uh, how does it work and what does it consider? So as I mentioned, the First Step Act required that there be this risk and needs assessment developed. And it also required that it be publicly released. And it was pretty ambitious on the timeline. They only had 210 days to do that. Um, So exactly 209 days later, then Attorney General William Barr publicly released a tool. And the tool pattern is an acronym. It stands for Prisoner Assessment Tool Targeting Estimated Risks and Needs. And it was developed by two outside experts who both had previously developed risk and needs assessment programs. They sat on multiple listening sessions um, with the DOJ during that process where they were developing pattern. They had conference calls with all sorts of constituent groups like the BOP and the National Institute of Justice. And they sat with various stakeholder groups, including organizations representing crime victims and public interest organizations. And then the tool was officially released. And the tool allows the BOP to provide a classification, as I said, for each incarcerated person. It has, it's it's essentially a, a table, right? Where you look at various factors like how many education programs you've participated in while you were incarcerated, what your age is, whether or not the crime, uh, what your criminal history background is, whether or not the crime you're incarcerated for was violent. All of those different factors are assigned a series of points. And then at the end, it gives each inmate a total point. And that point total puts you into one of those four identified ranges And that's how the pattern tool works. So what role do algorithms play then in the pattern tool? In other words, as I understand it, there's a kind of computerized or like machine learning type element to it. Where does that come in? What role does it play in in the system? It's a great question. Um, And the answer is we don't totally know just yet, right? So I want to give credit. Congress mandated certain disclosures for pattern in the act. And indeed, here the DOJ has provided much more information about this tool than, for example, 
uh, you know, North Point provided about the compass tool, which was uh, at use in the Loomis case in, in Wisconsin, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. It was sort of one of the first times these algorithmic risk assessment tools were brought before a court. So the DOJ has provided a lot of information about the development of it, but there is still some more information that we would like to have. And so there have been FOIA requests and other scholars have asked for information about how exactly the tool was made and specifically whether or not machine learning was part of it. So we know what the categories are and we know what each point total for the categories are, but we don't know why, for example, age is given X points and uh, infraction-free periods is given Y points, right? We don't know how they arrived at those. And if they used something like machine learning, which for those of your listeners who may not be as familiar, machine learning is just a subfield of artificial intelligence, wherein the rather than simply programming a computer to do something, right, having an algorithm, you actually program it to update its own code based on its own learning, which is the learning part of machine learning. As you can imagine, if you've chosen to use machine learning, it adds in a level of opacity in the process because we can understand here what the inputs are for the algorithm and we can understand here's what the outputs are, namely in this case, a risk level rating. But we won't necessarily understand why the algorithm made the connections it made and reached the output it reached. So we don't know if machine learning was involved in part of the the development of pattern or you know, if they just used standard regression analysis, which would be more easily explainable. Um, they were specifically, there were specific questions made about that um, in congressional testimony, but I don't think there's been any answer yet. It's not been in any of the official updated reports that I cite in my article. So what were the policy goals behind the adoption of this new pattern system? And to what extent are we seeing any positive developments in relation to those policy goals? I love that question because I think I try hard in my article to make it clear that there's a lot to like here, that um, I I say it's called the First Step Act. It's just that. It's a first step. Um, It's not complete yet. There's more we need to do, but let's take a moment and think about all the things that are good about this. The the policy goal ostensibly is to reduce mass incarceration. I mean, that's a great goal that a a lot of criminal justice reform organizations really cheered when the First Step Act passed. And I think that there is a lot to celebrate about the idea of reducing um, mass incarceration that way. And of course, my, uh, my article was, was largely finished just as COVID was hitting, but I was able to update it just briefly to note that at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an announcement from the BOP that they would be using this tool pattern to help determine who was eligible early release that might have to happen because of COVID. So I think the idea that we have a tool that helps us say some of these sentences are no longer necessary at the length they're at 
and we can release people and feel relatively confident that they will be able to be out in society as, as productive members, that's great. And I think that, again, there's a lot that they did well in this tool, right? So I think that they have tried to have some transparency. They have tried to release a lot of information. They have tried to have community involvement. There were a lot of community listening sessions. Uh, There was notice and comments. All of that is excellent, too. Where I think we need more information is we need more about exactly how the tool was developed, because there are some indications that the tool, that there might be racial disparities within the use of the tool. Now, that's not necessarily surprising, Brian, because we know that the tool relies on BOP data, criminal history data, and we know that there are racial disparities in this country in terms of who is arrested and who is prosecuted and who is sentenced. So it's not unusual. We're not surprised to find out that this tool might produce those same types of disparate outputs. But especially given knowledge like that, it's really important that researchers be able to access the data set themselves that we have answers about exactly how the tool was developed so that other people can recreate it, can assess accuracy. Um, There's a, a real tendency, I think, to think that certain issues that are policy are actually math. (laughs) So for example, we might think, well, everything she just said sounds like math. The tool has a certain number of points. You add up the points and it puts you in a risk category. That's math. But the policy is, what counts as low? What's the cutoff to medium? The policy is, why did we include this factor, but not that factor? The policy is, how did we weigh the factors? Could we have put in more dynamic factors? All of that is policy. So I think that trying to have as much transparency as we can about how those policy decisions were made will help not only strengthen the tool, but give people even more comfort about its use. Because I want to be clear, there are scholars who do a great job of pointing out, listen, these tools aren't at use in a vacuum. It may be better instead of asking, is it fair? It may be better to ask, is it more fair than other alternatives? Um, Is this tool less biased, perhaps, than leaving this up to the subjective decision of a warden or a parole board or something like that? So I think that I, I don't want to I don't want anyone to have a knee jerk reaction and say, oh, what a terrible idea. This tool is awful. I don't think that at all. I think that it's a good step in the right direction, but that there's still more that needs to happen. And we need more transparency and information so that scholars can make sure that if there needs to be recalibration, there is recalibration. Well, so you mentioned accuracy. What does it mean for a tool like this to be accurate? How would we assess accuracy? And to the extent that we have an idea of how accurate the tool is, sort of what do we know? That's great. It's a complicated question. And I'm going to try to take it in parts. Um, I want to first push back on this idea that accuracy is ever a straightforward goal, right? 
uh, I think we all understandably say, is it accurate? And that's an understandable question. And that's a question that we should be asking. But I want to be careful to not make that the most important question, because I don't think that it necessarily is, right? Um, when you talk about accuracy, Brian, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about it. So for example, we might be thinking through, do we want to think about a false negative in the same way we think about a false positive, right? So if we, let's say that the tool predicts that someone is going to reoffend, but they do not, right? So that would be a false positive. Is that more troubling to us or is that the same level of troubling as it predicting that someone will not offend and then they do a false negative? So the first thing I would say is there's a lot of different ways of thinking about accuracy and it's not, it's not as straightforward as we would like. In pattern, in developing pattern and in testing pattern, the DOJ focused on and the, the developers focused on a tool that's called area under curve. Um, and Melissa Hamilton has actually done a lot of really great work about area under curve. And I would really encourage people to, to read some of her scholarship on that. But we think that if, if, um, if a tool has, you know, area under curve is, is sort of on a scale from zero to one. And if it's a 0.8, then we would think, okay, that means it's accurate 80% of the time, right? That's sort of how area under curve works. And maybe as a layperson, you would think, oh, so then if pattern has a AUC of approximately 0.8, and that's around what they were calculating it at at various points, then that means that it's right 80% of the time about whether or not someone is going to reoffend. But that's not actually what it means at all, right? Instead, it really is, is talking about how how often someone who reoffended was placed in a higher risk category than someone who did not, which is very different than saying it's 80% accurate. I mean, we kind of think sometimes about sci-fi and the minority report, right? And like the predictions of, of crime or risk. So AUC is, is really different from what most of us would think of as a straightforward measure of accuracy. And again, it doesn't tell us whether or not the risk levels were placed at the right places to begin with. It can't speak to that kind of stuff. It can't necessarily differentiate between false positives and false negatives. So in that sense, I think that when they released pattern, the tool developers said, hey, this thing has pretty good accuracy. And in fact, it's a modest improvement over older tools and their accuracy. But that's just on one measure of accuracy that has been challenged and doesn't tell us everything we would want to know about the tool. So I think assessing accuracy is a really difficult task. And again, it may not even be the most important task that, that policymakers are going to care about. Well, one thing I was wondering while I was reading the article was to the extent that we care about accuracy, how, however defined, I guess. Do we have any idea of which factors are most salient in sort of determining the accuracy of a particular uh, a particular program or a particular approach? I mean, I kind of got the sense that this program is relying really heavily on on age. Is is that driving accuracy to some degree? Do you think? 
And I think it, it, it certainly is. And I think that it's conventional wisdom that one of the strongest predictors of recidivism is age, both age at the first age, at, at first uh, arrest, but also the age you are now at the point at which you're being assessed. So the idea is that those who are older are simply less likely to reoffend upon release. Um, some of that, if you really want to get a little ridiculous about it, I mean, they simply have less time, right? Like if we're tracking reoffending at all over the span of someone's life and one person has 40 years left to live and another has 10, we would understand age there. But there's also the idea that, um, you know, statistically younger people may be more likely to be involved in certain types of crimes based on uh, friendships that they have or a lack of economic opportunity or a lack of economic stability or other things. But yes, I think that it's definitely fair to say that it it doesn't require a lot of fancy st statistical analysis or a, you know, a really technical machine learning tool to say that one of the strongest indicators seems to be age. And again, I also want to make really clear, these tools purport to estimate or to predict reoffending. But of course they can't do that because if it's it's a little bit like if a tree falls and no one hears it, right? Did it fall? If if someone reoffends but is not caught, <laughs> then obviously no tool is going to be able to measure that. So these tools aren't predicting reoffending. They are predicting rearrest and often predicting reincarceration. And whether or not you are arrested for your crime has a lot to do with top with with factors that the tool can't predict, whether or not you're ultimately prosecuted. And the tools themselves don't always even agree on those terms. So some tools would count reoffending as being arrested for something that you are not ultimately uh, found guilty of. Some tools would count as reoffending if you have a probation violation or something like that. So the the tools themselves are not consistent about what counts as reoffending, but I really do want to focus people's minds on the idea that reoffending is not actually what they're measuring anyway. So it struck me that the the tools seem to have some theoretical virtues, which seem pretty attractive. I wonder how well those virtues track onto what happens in practice. I mean, after all, a lot of the dynamic features that you mentioned that 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 might help uh, that might help prisoners uh, you know show that they're less likely to reoffend might not always be available to them. Is that a problem? And that's a huge problem. So in my article, I talk about how a lot of the dynamic, and again, I want to. I think that the developers of patterns should be applauded for including dynamic factors. That's a best practice. We want to see that. It's important that people have some opportunity, meaningful opportunity to impact their own score. But meaningful is the important part, the, the important word in that phrase. Um, you know, there, there are classic chronic backlogs within the BOP system for incarcerated people who want to take vocational classes or who want to take educational classes. The article was written pre-COVID mostly, and so the data that I used was pre-COVID. I would imagine things may have been even worse because many, many federal correctional institutions had to shut down to outside 
um, you know, visitors, whether those would be people coming in to teach classes or coming in to provide certain therapies or other things like that. So I think it's really hard because this system really started with the risk instead of starting with the needs. And so we have assessed people based on a theoretical ability to reduce their score, but we haven't been able to fully guarantee that every person who wants to take advantage of each of those opportunities to reduce their score has that opportunity at the time they were initially assessed. So it's a it's a bit of a corner to be boxed into and it's a really important thing to keep in mind. I, I talk in the article about how when this was first announced, the um, some of the unions of people who work within prisons said, wait a minute, who? how are we going to staff all of these things? We're talking about providing all of these extra things. We're already understaffed. Where's the funding going to come from? How are we going to provide that? So it's it's definitely a real problem. So Amy, in, in closing, you observed that this really is kind of a first step toward criminal justice reform. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think next steps ought to look like and whether there's things that ought to happen in relation to this particular program you're talking about that would help us get us there. Yeah, I think that there are things that that certainly need to happen that could make things better. Um, I'm heartened that the tool, the, the First Step Act requires some monitoring of the tool and reassessment and recalibration, because all of those things are really important to having a tool that is going to be fair and that is going to do a good job. But I think that there are more things still that should happen. I talk in my article about why I think that there should be some additional transparency, including releasing the data set that was used to develop the tool and including releasing some additional information about how the tool was developed. I think obviously prioritizing the funding for um, opportunities for these dynamic factors to happen. So making sure that we have the types of vocational courses or educational courses or mental health counseling or substance abuse counseling, all of those things that this tool rightly acknowledges reduce recidivism. We need to make sure that those are widely available to people who are interested too. And then I think it's really important that they continue something that they've done a pretty good job of, which is seeking input, uh, not only from experts, but also stakeholder groups from the communities most impacted by mass incarceration and from the communities that are most impacted by tools like this. I think it's really important that those um, communities have an opportunity to provide input and to be taken seriously and to have their information given meaningful consideration and, and feedback. Well, Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this timely and important article. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it.
It's hard to be shut up in prison Away from your own hearty life With the cold prison bars all around you And a board for a pillow at night Lone and sad, sad and long Sitting in my cell all alone Thinking of the days that's gone by me down a man in the alley and taking all his green back away lone and sad sad and long sitting in my cell all alone thinking all the days that come by me when I know that I've done wrong got a brother and a sister who dwells in a cottage by the sea. I've got a father and a mother. I wonder if they ever think of me. days that's gone by me 